You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit www.providencetx.org. Good morning, Providence. <laughs> Sorry, uh, the lights didn't come on. I'm like, am I supposed to talk now? I don't know. Uh, good morning, Providence. How are y'all doing today? Uh, that's great. You guys are so excited this morning. <laughs> I know the weather is nice and chipper too. Um, my name is Scott Mahan. I'm the director of 514 Student Ministries. It's my pleasure to greet y'all this morning. Here at Providence, we have a simple vision that is to make the gospel unignorable in our communities. And to that end, each and every single week, we open, we open up the scriptures because we believe it is the only way that we can know, worship, and obey Jesus. And in accordance with that, we are going to continue our series through Mark called King and Crown, where we study the life of Jesus according to the gospel of Mark, and we compare how our culture tries to find identity apart from uh, Jesus himself. And so today we're going to be continuing in Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. If you have your scriptures, you can go ahead and turn there. And if you find yourself without a Bible this morning, there should be a black Bible somewhere underneath the seat around you, and you can go ahead and use that. And if you don't own a Bible, please consider that a gift from us to you. And again, we're going to be in Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. And when you've turned there, if you are able, please stand with me this morning for the reading of God's word. Again, Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 13, Providence. Hear the word of the Lord. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go, tell the disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him, Excuse me, she went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe him. Providence, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good morning to you. I want to welcome you here to Providence. My name is Cord. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And uh, if it's your first time, I want to say thanks for making us a part of your week. We're glad that you're here. Uh, we hope you enjoy yourself. We're coming to the end of our trek through the book of Mark. Um, we've been working through this book uh, all year long. And we've only got a couple of more sermons. So this is uh, the penultimate sermon of the series. And so I'm excited about it because obviously, as is true of every single gospel, really the heart of the gospel story finds is finds its uh, culmination in the cross and the resurrection. And in particular, Paul would tell us in the story of the resurrection. It's why Easter is so important. Um, and obviously, this is, a, this is a text, a portion of text, that typically will be delivered around Easter Sunday. But truthfully, every single Sunday is Resurrection Sunday because the fact that we worship on Sunday at all uh, in the New Covenant age is because the Lord Jesus was raised from the grave on Sunday. And so we have a lot of work to do, obviously 13 verses. I want to talk about um, an implication of the resurrection that we don't maybe as often as we ought to discuss. And then in particular answer a couple of questions 
what it means to us and what it should mean through us that Jesus is raised. So before we do that, I want to pray for us and I want to ask the Lord to speak to us through his word. And so if you'll bow your heads, I'll do that. Father, we're just so grateful that we get the privilege to gather together in your name and to humble ourselves under your mighty hand with the great hope of your promise that you are here with us, that your word is true and profitable for everything we need, and that you will sow the seed of your word in our hearts, and if it find good soil, you will bear a 30, a 60, a 100-fold harvest to your glory. And so we do ask now, would you prepare our hearts to receive from your word? about the truth of your resurrection, which is as true today as it was when these pages were penned. It is as important today as it was when the words were given from the Apostle Peter to Mark to write down, perhaps. And God, give us that sense that as we read your word, as we hear your word, that the very living words of God are active and will not return void. God, prepare us to receive today. And we ask that you would meet our needs that you know better than we could ever know. Minister to us now in the power of your resurrection, through the power of your spirit, in the power of your word. We ask in Jesus' good name. Amen. Amen. So last week, Eric walked us through the final moments of Jesus' earthly life. We spent three sermons through the crucifixion because there's so much to be said, and there's no way that we could exhaust it even if we had done an entire year on it, but what's going on at the crucifixion is so important. And last week, if you remember, where we were left is that Jesus had breathed his last. The disciples, in particular, a uh, more obscure clan of disciples, uh, specifically stated as Joseph of Arimathea, And then later we get the assumption that Nicodemus is involved. Uh, Two men of the Pharisee Sanhedrin council, perhaps, are the ones who rush to Pilate, get the body of Jesus, and try to get him into the tomb with spices and ointments before the Sabbath day, before the Passover, because it would have been illegal for them to bury him if the sun was fully down at that moment. And so they, they rush to get it done. Now, the disciples have been mourning together since then, a broken shell of their former band, If we remember, it wasn't two nights prior to this moment here that we're about to read about that these disciples had been blessed by sharing the Lord's Supper with Jesus. Judas had been identified as the betrayer, but ultimately the band of brothers was pretty tight at this moment. Peter had stood up and said, I'll never betray you. I'll go with you all the way to the end. There's no way I'm going to let them do this to you. And of course, we know that as Jesus warned Peter when he told him that Satan had asked to sift him like wheat, the next evening... Each disciple fled. Peter denied the Lord three times. The Bible records, other than John, the women only were the ones who watched as Christ was beaten, mocked, and ultimately crucified. Now, this is the, the, the context through which we pick up the story here. Is the, It's a very morose, difficult moment in the life of the disciples. They're not parting. They're, they're, they're downtrodden. This was the Lord, and now he's been killed. So let's start picking up in verses 1 through 8. I want to read here. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. 
And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, whom was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and they fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment. It seized them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. So the women make their way to the tomb on Sunday morning. And they're going there to show great honor to the Lord Jesus. They want to even though Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, whether they know or not, have already anointed his body with the spices and ointments that were necessary for funeral burial. They want to come and do this themselves. They love Jesus and they want to come to the tomb. And Mark records that they come when the sun had risen, which I just want to point out is a callback to the last book of your Old Testament, the book of Malachi, which tells us that there's a promise in chapter four, the last chapter of your Old Testament, that the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. So when the sun is risen, just risen, and there's obviously a play on words here, not only is the sun in the sky just risen, the sun of righteousness is risen. They're gonna go see with their very own eyes. The women show up to the tomb. And they wonder for themselves, who is going to roll away this heavy stone for us? Now, remember, the Gospels have told us what kind of stone this is. It's a massive gravestone that was sealed on the front of Jesus' tomb. This was put there by the Romans because they were very interested in keeping Jesus' body where it was, dead and in the tomb, because he had preached about the potential of uh, being raised. He had, pre- he had preached about the potential of being the son of God. They were not interested in any sort of religious people finding out that maybe this guy had credibility. So they remember they put a soldier outside of his tomb and they sealed his tomb with a massive stone. The women, maybe perhaps not even knowing about the soldier, are worried about the rock. They're worried about how are we going to be strong enough to get this stone out. But the Bible's already told us, we know in one of the other gospels, that What happened to the soldier that was at the front of the tomb? Well, the Bible tells us that when the angel rolled the stone back, the soldier decided, "Um, you know, this is not worth the money. And he just goes ahead and books it. He runs like most of us would. You know, he's not going to get paid enough by Caesar to face down the heavenly host or anything. So he's kind of out of there, you know. And the women show up after the stone's already been removed. Let's see what the Bible continues to say. It says they, they show up and there's this man, young man, who's dressed in a white robe. Now, I love what commentators say about this fact. Many rightly point out that it was not for Jesus that the stone, the heavy stone, was rolled back, as if Jesus was trapped in his tomb and he needed the angels to kind of let him out so they had the angels roll back the stone. The reason we know this is not true is because we see many times that Jesus in his resurrected body, as is evidenced and testified of in the Gospels, Jesus is not remotely bound by physics, He does things that bodies typically should not be able to do. Examples, he conceals himself to certain disciples and then just decides to transfigure his face and then reveal himself to them. So at first he's just a gardener to Mary, then he's Jesus when he calls her by name, which is essential. Or he's just a guy walking on the road to Emmaus and then all of a sudden in the breaking of bread, the communion the communion symbol, they know he's Jesus. But then my very favorite of all is the disciples, terrified, disbelieving, 
they're locking their doors in the upper room as they pray, and they're worried about the Romans coming in and breaking down the door and doing to them what they had done to Christ. And it says that as they're praying, Jesus is in the midst of them, (laughs) meaning that he just kind of, you know, moseys through locked doors. So we know that the angel was not opening up the stone so that, you know, Jesus could get out. So what did the commentators say? Well, the stone is rolled away for the purpose of letting the women in, the disciples in, letting you and I in. And why would God need to roll the stone away to let us in? Well, twofold. One, that we might see for ourselves that he's risen. And isn't that the essential of the Christian life, that you would know for yourself that Jesus is truly the son of God? Remember, Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? But then the most important question is, who do you say that I am? And then Peter has his moment. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. The women have to go in and see for themselves. Notice that they all disbelieve through the testimony of the women until they also see for themselves that Jesus is risen. But I think there's something else that's happening here, namely the literary and symbolic, that you and I also are going to be invited into the tomb. Just as Jesus died and was buried, you and I will die to sin and be buried in the waters of baptism. And then we will experience the resurrection and the life in the person of Christ and the filling of the spirit. That's what's happening here as well. That we have an invitation, not just to resurrection life, but first to death. You see, we're born dead in sin, but only the Christian is, born, is going to be born again and dead to sin first. Does that make sense? You and I are born in our flesh, dead in sin. But the Christian's gonna be born again, and in order for him to be born again, he must die to sin through faith in the son of God and go into that grave with him so that they might come out new. Now, as, as they go into the tomb, they're met with this fright. There's a young man sitting there in dazzling apparel. You gotta think this is a creepy moment. <clears throat> it's a dark tomb. Jesus was just buried there, so there was a dead body there. I don't know if you guys have ever been a part of anything like that, you know, been, been a part being around dead bodies. You know, don't, I don't make it a favorite pastime or anything, but I will say, it's a little creepy, okay? They come in, man sitting there, dazzling white apparel. They are rightly alarmed, And the response is as follows. The angel says, do not be alarmed. (laughs) I love that because the Bible always does this. They were very alarmed. The angel says, do not be alarmed. You know, (laughs) addressing directly what's going on. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee and there you will see him just as he told you. Now, the women's response to this, I'm not going to be too hard on the women just because they're at women's retreat and I could get away with it slightly. I see there's still some of you around. Maybe I would have been a little harder. But I will say this response from the women is exactly how we all respond, namely that we do the exact opposite of what they, we are told to do. Is He says, don't be afraid. Go and tell your brothers. They're afraid and they don't tell anyone at first. Now, before we're too hard on that, I just want to make mention, this is exactly how the Bible records most people react to these angelic moments. You see, we have this weird sense that we're going to have this one on what, like if God revealed himself to us, then we'd have a lot to say to the big guy. No, you wouldn't. Okay? When angels actually show up, you don't really feel like questioning them about anything. You're mostly scared and just want to get out of there. And that's what the Bible always tells us. Now, this fear, interestingly, is essential to overcome Because if we don't overcome that fear by the help of God, then we miss the message they bring. And the women actually do overcome this fear. They end up sharing the message. And then, of course, we get what every married couple understands is that then the men do what they do, which is not believe them. 
okay? They don't believe. And that also is pretty heavily uh, listed throughout the scriptures, like with Samson and his wife. His wife sees the angel, comes back in. <laughs> and, and, and listen, I think actually Samson's uh, dad's a pretty righteous guy. I'm just, just kind of funny that he says, tell the angel to show up to me. <laughs> you know, it's pretty, pretty typical, right? And this is what we see here. Now, I want to point out to you also, this idea of what's happening here at the resurrection and this powerful, kind of terrifying materialization of a young man in dazzling apparel who we know is an angel who's able to pull back tombs and tombstones and things of this nature. This is also seen in the way in which the Bible depicts the resurrected Christ in a different manner than the incarnated Christ as he was walking the earth. I want to read to you what John saw on the island of Patmos when he saw the resurrected Christ. Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 through 18. Listen. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Notice, it was not when I saw him, I was ready to give him my questions. I fell at his feet as though dead. Now here's the love of God. What does, what does Jesus do? But he laid his right hand on me. He keeps him alive. And says to me, fear not. Now listen to Jesus' words. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. I'm going to read to you this quote. It's kind of long. I'm really getting towards the end. I couldn't help myself. It's totally worth you guys chipping in. I, it's so worth it that I had them write this whole thing down on the screen. So they're going to be up here. And of course, it's from... My man, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, listen to this. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus was in itself a marvelous display of power. To raise the dead body of our Lord from the tomb was as great a work as the creation itself. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, each one wrought this greatest miracle. I need not stay to quote the text in which the resurrection of our Lord is, is ascribed to the Father, who brought from the dead that great shepherd of the sheep. Nor need I mention scriptures in which the Lord is said to have been quickened by the Holy Spirit. Nor those instances in which that great work is ascribed to the Lord Jesus himself. But assuredly, the sacred writings represent the divine trinity in unity as gloriously cooperating in the raising again of the dead person of our Lord Jesus Christ. It was, however, a special instance of our Lord's own power. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He also said, concerning his life, I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. I do not know whether I can convey my own thoughts to you. By the way, that's why I'm reading his thoughts, because that's how I felt. But what strikes me very forcibly is this. No mere man can going to his grave could say, I have power to take my life up again. The departure of life leaves the man necessarily powerless. He cannot restore himself to life. Behold, the sacred body of Jesus embalmed in spices and wrapped about with linen. It is laid within the sealed and guarded tomb. How can it come forth to life? And yet Jesus said, I have power to take my life up again. And he proved it true. Strange power. That spirit of his, which had traveled through the underlands and upwards to eternal glory, had power to return and to re-enter that holy thing which had been born of the virgin, to revivify that flesh which could not see corruption. 
Behold, the dead and buried one makes himself to live. Herein is a marvelous thing. He was master over death, even when death seemed to have mastered him. He entered the grave as a captive, but he left it as a conqueror. He was compassed by the bonds of death, but he could not be holden of them. Even in his, even in his ceremonies, he came to life. From those wrappings, he, bound him, he unbound himself. From the clothes fastened tomb, he stepped into the liberty. If in the extremity of his weakness, he had the power to rise out of the sepulcher or the grave and come forth into newness of life, this is the question, what can he not now accomplish? That's where I want to focus. If he took up his own life by the power that he himself had, what can he not now accomplish? We titled this series at the beginning of the year, King and Crown. And I don't want to spend too much time on this because most likely it will bore you. It's like a, you know, it's, the, it's a preacher thing, but I, I want to say it anyway. The consensus of most commentators is that the theme of the book of Mark is found at the end of chapter 15. When the centurion cries out, when Jesus breathes his last, truly this man is the son of God. And so most commentators say that Jesus being the son of God is the point of Mark, that Mark wants you to know Jesus truly is the son of God. You see, it's the gospel of Matthew that's seen as having a kingship theme, that Christ is the Messiah, therefore the king of the Jews and the king of the nations. And I want to say, I agree with this wholeheartedly. And yet I still titled it the opposite. (laughs) And here's why. I'm convinced that if Christ be the true son of God, he can be no other than the king of all kings and lord of all lords. Because the spiritual authority wielded by Christ throughout the book of Mark, which focuses on the miracles of Jesus, are a testament to the royal authority that only the true son of God could possess. It culminates here in this passage where Jesus does the most profound miracle of all. And kid yourself not, this is Jesus' most profound miracle. That he raised himself to life. Magicians do some crazy things. How can they, being dead, raise themselves to life? At its very core, it is the antithesis of logic. Because the dead can do no thing unless you're the son of God, truly. Unless death has no true power over you. Unless you are the second member to the triune nature of the God of all things. And then and only then can you take up your own life again. You see, if Matthew is about Jesus being the Messiah, the king of the nations, my contention is that if Jesus is the son of God, he can be no other than not just the king of nations, but the king of all creation. He's the heir, not just to David. He's the heir to God the Father. And therefore, I believe that Mark, next week we'll get into this, he gives a unique take on the Great Commission that we not only should go to all the nations, but that we should preach the gospel to all creation. Why? Because Jesus is not just the king of the nations, but the king of all things. In other words, the world that you and I now live in, post-resurrection of Jesus Christ, is a world rightfully owned by him. He lays claim to it. As Abraham Kuyper says, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is the sovereign over all, does not rightfully cry, mine. And isn't that interesting? 
Because if you're a parent in the room, you know that your children learn to cry mine at like one, two. The moment they could say words, they think everything's theirs. But Christ, on the other hand, actually has a rightful claim. And to what? Well, as one commentator says, Christ is the origin and the destiny of every single object. Every single speck of matter, every spiritual thing that you and I cannot see, Christ has authority and ownership over. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the true sovereign. In olden days, they used to call the king the sovereign, and that was because he was the only one that could lay any edict in all of the entirety of the domain, and it must be obeyed. And to an extent, it was, of course, true, but we all know that spiritually speaking and in the grand scheme of things, this is all LARPing. (laughs) This is all pretending that ultimately there is only one king, and he's not just the king of the earthly nations, friends. What Mark wants you to know as he commands the demons is that he's the king of every single thing that is. The true sovereign. Matthew chapter 22, verse 44 says this. Jesus questions the Pharisees, and he asks them about this passage. He quotes the Psalms, and he says, what does this Psalm mean? He says, what does it mean when David said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet? The Pharisees didn't know what to do with that passage. Well, I'll tell you what Jesus was getting at. He was saying that David, writing thousands of years before Jesus, was saying, the Lord, God the Father, said to David's Lord, Jesus, the root of David, sit at my right hand after the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. Sit now at my right hand until I, as the King James says, Make all thine enemies thy footstool. We are in the midst of Christ, post-resurrection and ascension, going out. And all of the enemies of Christ will ultimately be brought under subjection of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the future, and he does so with a loving reign that only he can bring. Namely, that he brings a message of amnesty in the gospel to every part of creation. And says, if you will but bow to the king you will have life forevermore. Now, what should we do with this? Well, we should have gratitude for the kingship of Christ. We should rejoice and gladly submit to his reign, of course. Let me tell you something, friends. There is no king like him. And I think, I hope you've gotten this this, uh, gist as I've walked through the book of Mark. It's not a question of whether there will be an authority. The question is what kind of authority will we have? Because, friends, power abhors a vacuum and it will find an authority that will take it. The question is not whether someone's going to take authority. They always will. The question is what king will reign? And there's no king like Jesus. There's no king like Jesus. And so we should gladly receive his reign because any other who seeks to reign will do so. And ultimately, much like the ring of power, it will consume them. We should have faith in the sovereign power and infinite wisdom of Christ. If Christ can do all things, which Spurgeon is getting at here, and then he chooses not to do something that you and I have deemed to be good and right, we should be able to trust that he knows what he's doing. What do I mean by this? If you've ever prayed for something, knowing that Christ can and that he's able, and you think that it's a good thing, you've even read certain scriptures that would confirm to you that it's a good thing, and yet God has not answered that prayer in the affirmative, here's what you ought to do. Know that he knows what he's doing. Look to the cross and the resurrection. Every disciple thought it was a terrible idea for Jesus to build a kingdom by dying. And yet now we know it was the only way to build a kingdom that has no end. 
if the Lord has chosen to give you an answer to prayer that you may be offering up to him? The answer is no. It's because he knows what he's doing and that he will bring ultimately everything to come about for your good and his glory, just as he did his very own son. And then lastly, we should walk in obedience. The message of the angel here to the women is a prelude to the great commission. No sooner had the women been struck with the reality that Jesus wasn't dead anymore, but now he's alive, were they then sent immediately to go and share that news with the gospel, of the gospel to the disciples. Christianity integrally will always be, has always been evangelistic. You cannot have the gospel and the good news of the gospel without the great commission sending us to bear that news. Our weapons of warfare are not carnal in Christ's kingdom. Therefore, the message of the gospel going forward is the primary sword we wield, the very words of God. Now, this passage has a couple of more things I want to point out before I close. Namely, it gives us some phrases. These phrases being um, hidden within the passage in a way that if you've read some of your Old Testament, you might pick up on it. But if not, then you just kind of roll right through it. And, and here's what I'll say. It doesn't mean that if you've rolled right over, you haven't gotten the meaning. You have gotten one of the meanings. There's more than one meaning. I want to focus on one that we see in the angel's address. He tells them to go and tell the disciples and tell Peter that Jesus is going before them. Now, this is another callback. Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 1 through 8. Listen to this moment with Moses, and at the end of his life, he speaks to Joshua and the congregation. So Moses continued to speak these words to all Israel, and he said to him, he said to them, I'm 120 years old today. I'm no longer able to go out and come in. The Lord has said to me, you shall not go over this, Jordan. The Lord your God himself will go over before you. There's the first. He will destroy these nations before you so that you shall dispossess them. And Joshua will go over it at your head as the Lord has spoken. And the Lord will do to them as he did to Sihon and Og and the kings of the Amorites and to give and to their land when he destroyed them. And the Lord will give them over to you and you shall do to them according to the whole commandment that I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Verse seven, then Moses summoned Joshua and he said to him in the sight of all of Israel, be strong and courageous for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them and you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. There it is again. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. You see, in this passage, Moses is about to die and hand the baton to Joshua. And he wants to commission Joshua before all of the sight of the people of Israel. He recites to them the commands in Deuteronomy before they cross the river. And then he informs them, God has told me I'm not going across. You have to remember, this is 40 years as they've been in wandering. The land of the promise is God's land that's been inhabited by squatters, at least in the sight of God. This is how God has seen it. He is seeing it as this is the promised land that he had allotted for Israel. If you want to understand this, you've got to go back to Babel when God had allotted lands for different nations. This was Israel's land that he had allotted. And so God said to them, I'm going to bring you into this land. I'm going to dispossess this people. And here's how he's going to do it. And this is very key. God will fight for them. He will bring about the victory. The means 
through which Israel takes the land is total trust and reliance upon God. And the victories will always be won in these remarkable ways that give them no glory at all personally. If you've read the Bible, you know this. God says, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you the land of Israel. How is he going to do it? I want you to march around a fortified city seven days, seven times, and then sing. And the wall will come down and you'll win. Another time he tells Gideon, Gideon, here's what I want you to do. Get you guys together, get a jar, light the lamp. Gideon shows up with lots of men. God says, the army's too big, make it smaller. Make it smaller, keep making it smaller. Gideon's starting to get nervous. Smaller, smaller, smaller. Okay, 300 guys, good. Run into the camp of the millions. When I tell you, shout really loud and crack your lamp. You're not killing anybody. I'm gonna have them kill all each other. And that's exactly what happens. At the end of Moses' life, Moses turns to Joshua and tells Joshua, God's going to go before you. Don't be afraid or dismayed. Don't be discouraged. Fast forward to the tomb, the angel's message to the women that will ultimately be translated to the disciples and then to you and me is don't worry, God will go before you. You don't have to be afraid. He's the one who wins the battles. If every square inch is Christ's, he goes before you to claim that which is his. Your job is to believe and be obedient. That's it. Just like the Israelites were inundated with fear in the beginning, the women are inundated with fear here, and the angel knows the message they need to hear is that God will go before you. In other words, he will prepare the hearts of these disciples to hear this message. And even when they disbelieve, he'll meet them himself. Now, why am I hammering down on such a short passage of scripture? Well, the times that you and I live in are filled with fear. They're tumultuous. And it's a natural response when you think of it, when you consider our world, it turning increasingly violent, topsy-turvy. Evangelism and mission seem to us to be an afterthought because it almost feels as though why, why in the world would we ever think that we're going to gain another square inch when evil seems to be completely enveloping much of the world. Everyone is angry. Everyone is volatile. Wars and rumors of wars, all of these different things. How in the world are you going to think about evangelism or Christ conquering anything at this moment? And I want to remind you, this is the very way, both in Old and New Testament, that God has chosen to work in redemptive history. Hopeless, dark, difficult, and terrifying circumstances are the fodder for God's glorious redemption. Why? Because he gets the glory in those moments. He loves those moments because he gets the glory for it. Giants in the land, they're outnumbered. Violent warriors, great walled cities. The Israelites have no money, no weapons, no training. They only have the clothes on their back, which God was intent on keeping for, you know, 40 years from moths, destroying. God loves that kind of battle because there's no way this group wins unless he wins it for them. And so now when the world seems as dark as it could ever see, seem to us, my prayer for us is that you would, you would begin to look for the hand of God's mighty redemption because this is how and when he likes to operate. The church of Jesus Christ will not advance a square inch in the culture like ours around the world because we have cultural institutional power at the moment, because we have the best movies, 
If we could just bring Carmen back, you know, then maybe Carmen. For those of you who don't know Carmen, you're not missing. Young people are like, what is he talking about? <laughs> if we could get cool t-shirts. If Creed would just come back and claim Christ. Let me tell you something. No. And in these moments, what you should think is, these are the moments that are most ripe for God's glorious victory of redemption. I believe we will see more people coming to know the Lord Jesus in the resurrection of his power in the coming days than we have seen in a very long time. And the reason for that is not because I think I'm set up to be a great preacher, but because God likes it when very weak people like me are the ones he gets to use because he knows that no one would believe I could pull it off. If Jonathan Edwards were here, maybe different, you know? If Spurgeon were alive, you'd be like, well, that's because that guy can preach. But if it's me, then it's Christ has to get the glory. This is the way I see it. I'm just using me as an example. If the times are dark, God gets the glory. Christ's resurrection, the story of his resurrection, is the promise and the power to fulfill the Great Commission. Let me say that again. It's the promise that the Great Commission will happen, and it's the power to fulfill it happening. You see, when Jesus told the disciples to go, he was not telling them merely something that they ought to obey, although he was. He was telling them something that will take place. The Great Commission will go forward. Christ will be proclaimed. All that was lost through sin and rebellion will be won back. All that was broken through the fall of Adam will be restored in the second Adam. He will leave nothing untouched. He is not merely the king of the nations. He's the king of all creation. And he will redeem and restore every atom, every molecule. It is his after all. The Israelites went out with sword and shield. But we go out with this message. Christ crucified and raised. And how can we be assured that God will accomplish what he has set us out to do? Well, because he goes before us and because Christ is alive. The last thing I want to point out is, why does Mark seem to pick out just a handful of characters as the people that Jesus is interested in meeting up with or revealing himself to? I think it's because a prominent message from the writer, Mark, perhaps through the, the author, Peter, is that God's interest is not merely in those who are prepared to receive the message of the gospel, but in fact, sometimes the most hopeless cases are the ones God's after. Paul seems to think of this when he says, I am the chiefest of all sinners and God saved me so that he might reveal to coming ages the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness because he saved a guy like me. I think that's what Peter or Mark is trying to get here because the three people he points out is Mary Magdalene of whom seven demons were cast out. The angel says, go get the disciples and tell Peter. If you've ever failed miserably and felt at your absolute bottom, this is that passage where Jesus says, tell the disciples and tell Peter, I'm coming to talk to him. You ever been at your lowest? You feel like that's, I know I'm not a part of that group anymore. I used to be in this station, but now I'm not in that station anymore. I used to be this, but now I've got kind of fallen down to the bottom rung. The message of the angel is the message of the gospel that namely, Jesus is integrally, integrally interested not just to meet the disciples who 
maybe fled but didn't deny, but Peter himself. Tell Peter, make sure Peter knows I'm alive. And that message is not that I'm alive for justice or vengeance. I'm alive to extend grace. Finally, the disciples on the road, and this one resonates with me perhaps more than any other. The disciples on the road to Emmaus, you remember what they were doing? Just talking about how crazy the events in Jerusalem were and trying to figure it out. And if you are living now, this is, you can understand these guys, right? Like, do you know what's going on? Have you watched the news? That's what they asked Jesus, you know, in a very first century type of way. If you watch the news, you know what's going on in Jerusalem? And Jesus, of course, being raised, says, no, tell me what's going on. And they got, this guy was crucified. He said he was the Christ. Then there were earthquakes, dead people running around, graves open, temple, got, temple veil torn in two, Pharisees acting crazy. They buried him. Now the disciples are saying he's alive. We don't know what to think of it. Jesus seeks out these guys that are just trying to make sense. They're unaware. They don't understand the scriptures. They're just, they have no idea. And he sends in the middle of their wandering. Jesus shows up. I believe that this is in this passage to remind the Christians and also to remind you if you're not sure you're a Christian. The kinds of people the resurrection is for. The resurrection is for people who are too far gone. Seven demons inhabit them. They are possessed, owned, completely without hope, without God in the world. The resurrected Christ seeks you out. The resurrection is for the failure. The person who feels as though they keep, they're like Charlie Brown. They can't get their foot on the ball. They never get it right. They're just going to keep struggling with this sin over and over and over again. The resurrected Christ seeks you out to make you new. The resurrection is for the confused, for the unaware, for the everyday on a journey, wandering around, stumbling around, not sure what the heck's going on, the resurrected Christ seeks you out. Christ seeks all of us out that he might make us altogether new and he is not daunted by hopeless cases. Why? Because he took up his own life again by his own power. Nothing else is heavy lifting. And so I leave you with this. If you believe that the work of redemption is truly Christ's work, and I do believe it is, and if you believe that he is truly with us, if you believe he's truly alive, and he is, if you believe that he's gone before you, and he truly has, that he's still seeking and saving that which is lost, and he continues to be, and I bring you this encouraging message, you have nothing to fear except one thing, unbelief. That's it. You have nothing to be afraid of in a world full of reasons to fear in the flesh. You know the one thing that you and I should look in the mirror and say, I do, I'm afraid of falling into that, not believing that Jesus really is who he says he is. Not trusting him. That's the one thing that gets my heart racing, that I'd fall into despair and unbelief. Because if you're in this room, and perhaps like Mary, or like Peter, or like the unaware, you're stumbling around in this life. The Lord Jesus seeks you out this morning, the resurrected Christ. Listen to me, not a JV version of what the disciples got. That's how you and I often live. Peter got the real thing. Paul the apostle got the real thing. We get something. No, the resurrected Christ seeks you out this morning. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the first and the last, Alpha Omega. He seeks out a meeting with you. I got to be a very raw messenger to you, but I'm not the one you need to talk to. And then if you're a Christian this morning, brothers and sisters in Christ, my prayer is that this morning, this is an encouragement to you. He is alive. He goes before you. Don't be afraid. Herald the news. Every square inch is his. 
And he is never about the business of unfinished projects. God finishes what he starts, both in you and through you. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that the glory of your son Jesus shines. And it cannot be put out by any length of darkness. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are in the midst of us. And by the power of your spirit, I ask humbly, would you reveal yourself to us for those that are in the room right now that need to experience the grace that you have to offer, Lord Jesus, I pray you'd meet them right where they are. For those that find themselves in the shoes of of Peter, completely downtrodden, would you meet them where they are, my God, and lift them up as you did Peter on the shores of that beach. Meet us now, we ask. There be those that are in the situation that Mary found herself in before she met you, Lord Jesus. We pray that you would cleanse the house, the temple of their body, and bring your Holy Spirit in. For those of us who are confused, we pray, my God, would you bring clarity in a life, in a time full of absolute craziness and madness. We pray, bring peace to us now in the simple truth that, Jesus, you are alive and that you go before us. As we take of your supper, may that be imprinted on our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.